This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Everyday Courage, 50 Devotions to Build a Bold Faith, written and narrated by John Bevere, and available everywhere audiobooks are sold. This spring and summer, a lot of headlines about the economy sang a similar tune. This was CNN. Why American workers don't want to go back to normal. This was from the Wall Street Journal. Job openings are at record highs. Why aren't unemployed Americans filling them? From the New York Times, why aren't people going back to their jobs? The Washington Post, it's not a labor shortage. It's a great reassessment of work in America. Across the country, hundreds of companies and businesses, many of them in the hospitality and service industries were searching for employees and they weren't finding them. Some state governments began to halt the federal government's unemployment funds worried that the cash was disincentivizing unemployed people from working. Companies and businesses began to raise salaries and add benefits, but many people weren't persuaded. They weren't gonna go back to their pre-pandemic line of work. One restaurant worker in Austin told the Washington Post, quote, the staffing issue has actually a lot more to do with the conditions that the industry was in before COVID and people not wanting to go back to that, knowing that they would be facing with a pandemic on top of it. People are forgetting that restaurant workers have actually experienced decades of abuse and trauma. The pandemic is just the final straw. Many of us, especially those of us who are professionals, may believe our work matters or that at least it ought to. We've heard Christian leaders make the case for work glorifying God and theological arguments being made to stir us to do good work. But is this always the case? Has this framework instead ever been used to dehumanize and exploit workers? We wanted to ask, is the quest for, quote, meaningful work a scam? You're listening to Quick to Listen, where we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, Global Media Manager at Christianity Today. I'm Ted Olson. I'm Executive Editor of Christianity Today. All right, Ted, I feel like we settled on this topic really quickly a couple of days ago and you had summed it up as meaningful work a scam and made me think that it has been on your mind a decent amount. So I'd love to hear your <laughs> gut check about this current situation we're in. I was being a little cheeky with the is meaningful work a scam. I think in some ways it's, is the quest for meaningful work a scam, but I, I basically feel like people are regardless of their age, like hitting what I hear a lot of my age cohort folks going through. And that is kind of a lot of these basic midlife questions. Wait, what have I been doing all this time? Is my work meaningful? Does it make a difference? What have I actually accomplished? And is this something I want to be doing? Like a lot of the questions that I'm hearing people ask in their you know late 20s or that I especially hear out of professions like teaching right now or restaurants, they sound like a lot of the questions that I hear my old high school and college friends asking these days, which is, am I just working because I've been working? Like, have I fallen into some trap of trying to justify these 8, 10, 12 hours a day I spend working as that this is meaningful? I'm not saying that meaningful work is a scam, but I do think that a lot of us hit a point where we're like, have I bought into some ideas that are nonsense, that have led me to spend way too much time that I could have spent on more life-giving, human, family-boosting, whatever. 
other kinds of pursuits that would bring me more joy and that would be more more human. I love my job, Morgan. I'm executive editor at CT, like the job I always wanted. It is amazing. But there's still times, you know, where I'm like, is this really what I'm supposed to be doing? At the end of the day, when I'm like, I'm too tired to spend like meaningful time with my kids, like, have I been duped into something? That's the anxiety that people are facing, especially in an era of COVID. Morgan, what is your gut check on all of this? Yeah, I would say that my gut check has been heavily informed by a podcast and some articles that I've read this past week. And obviously, many of the articles that I mentioned at the top were articles that I was reading when they were coming out over the course of the summer. But This American Life, their podcast last week was looking at how work had changed over the course of the year. And I was listening to a segment where they talked to a restaurant worker. And what's interesting about this restaurant worker is that she talks about the essentially mistreatment and abuse that she suffered as a restaurant worker in that, you know, there's a lot of crude things that people say to you and ways that you're just kind of dehumanized. And she talked about how she in many ways was willing to compartmentalize and to just kind of check out when she left work and not engage those things that happened to her. The story basically talks about why she was really having a challenging time over COVID. She's based in Arizona and restaurants came back. They were seen as essential or listed as essential much earlier than in some other states, at least when it came to indoor dining and so forth. She had mentioned in particular getting a comment card from a customer who said, thank you so much for making everything feel normal here. Those words really cut her because she felt basically that with her job, she was helping people pretend that there was not a pandemic happening and that didn't sit right with her, that she had been creating this experience for other people. And so she ended up leaving the job shortly thereafter, after one of her coworkers got exposed to COVID. But it was just a really good, I thought, case study of what a lot of people have been feeling who have worked in really challenging and hard industries over time, accepted a certain level of mean people who are now being in many ways pushed over the edge or people who were furloughed last year who then decided they didn't want to go back to that. And I've just been reading these stories a lot. Ted, I think you've been reading them a lot too. So I don't know exactly what my gut check is otherwise, other than that I'm like so curious about what all of this means. I mean, I'm obviously rooting for a lot of people who are in places where they don't want to be mistreated or undervalued and are searching for more from their careers these days. You were saying right before you came on the show, you were reading this New York Times article, Flight Attendant's Hellish Summer. I don't even feel like a human. Exactly. I mean, that was a really sad article to read. They said that there's more like aggressiveness than ever in these things. So, yeah, I just had a friend of a friend quit her teaching job because a parent assaulted her and grabbed her mask and ripped it off of her face. And she's like, I like teaching these kids, but this is not the life I want to live. This work is not worth it. Well, let's talk about some of this stuff with our guest this week. Our guest is Luke Bobo. He is Vice President of Networks for Made to Flourish, which is a ministry that helps pastors and churches better understand work and economics in light of their faith. He also has several books. He's the author of Living Salty and Light-Filled Lives in the Workplace and A Layman's Guide to Biblical Interpretation and Race, Economics, and Apologetics. So Luke, thank you very much for coming on the show. We, we were eager to have Luke on because of his work educating church leaders about how to think theologically about 
the economy, about workplaces and all these things. So Luke, thanks for coming on. Quick to listen. Thank you, Morgan. And thank you, Ted. You know, we've talked a lot about faith in the workplace and people trying to find meaning and trying to find religious meaning, trying to find Christian meaning, trying to see where Jesus is in, in their work. In your mind, what is happening right now in August 2021? What's the new cast on some of those questions? Is it COVID? I mean, I assume a lot of it's COVID. I think for all of us, we're all experiencing COVID. This is a global pandemic. Secondly, I think the global pandemic has afforded us all the privilege to slow down and reflect. A case in point, if what happened to George Floyd would have happened prior to this pandemic, I'm not sure if it would have gotten the attention that it got because it happened during a pandemic when most of us were quarantined. I will say this as well. I think we may have set up work for something it was never designed to do. Tim Keller puts it this way. Sometimes we think too little of our work and sometimes we think too much of our work. The one extreme is idleness. The other extreme is idolatry. But I will also say this. The reason why I think so many people are struggling is because we would spend, the average is 90,000 plus hours in our workplaces over our careers. But for many, a majority of those hours are spent working in very difficult workplaces. And I think that has, in many ways, skewed our perception of work. I should say it this way. The fall of man impacts our workplaces because we work around sinners and, and we're sinners. We've heard a lot about uh, that work is part of God's good creation. You know, Adam and Eve are, are made to work in the garden before the fall. The fall has kind of turned work into toil. As you just pointed out, like the part of working around sinners sometimes gets left out of some of that faith in the workplace. But actually, for a lot of folks, and this seems to be a cast for 2021, it's not so much the work itself that people are saying, I'm out of here. It's they're quitting because they're fed up with other human beings or I'm being treated poorly. And in a lot of cases, there's still a lot of frustration with bosses, I think. What does that shift from wrestling with meaning in our work to wrestling with whether it's worth it dealing with other people, how can that change some of the faith in the workplace questions? What do we need to think more about? Is it just like love your neighbor? Is there something deeper that that we can get into? It boils down to what Abraham Heschel in his book, The Prophets, said. He said, justice is a divine concern. I just wonder if Christians in particular in the workplace share that same divine concern for justice, would our workplaces be different? And I would venture to say yes. If more Christians spoke out against injustice in the workplace, there would be more flourishing. My ethics professor, I love this man, David Jones said, God has designed three institutions for the sake of human flourishing, city government, the family, and the church. And I would add a fourth. I would add the workplace. For many, the workplace is not a place of flourishing. I wanted to bring up an example that is actually like in this article about the flight attendants that we've mentioned about just like the competing priorities that those in the workplace are having to make, you know, and I'm I'm sure that you've talked to many business leaders who have explained how just the, the tensions of living out their faith in their jobs. But one of the things that comes up is a tension between the fact that their employees are exhausted 
and overworked, partially because they don't have enough flight attendants to do these jobs right now, while simultaneously they also are dealing with having to staff people at even longer and longer and longer hours because there's not enough people to do those jobs. And of course, sometimes when they have not staffed enough people, they might have to cancel some of the flights and so forth, which obviously increases customer angst. I'm curious about how you would advise someone who is in those situations specifically about what they need to be centering and thinking of. Obviously, there's a lot of like general scripture procedures there, but that one in particular like, just stuck out to me as far as a lot of people who are supervisors and managers and schedulers these days have a lot to balance and are trying to figure out how much they can push their employees given the circumstances that we're in without obviously contributing to their burnout. Yeah. So I just quote something that Jesus said, and I think this principle applies to believers and non-believers, and that is this, treat your employees like you want to be treated. If I'm scheduling someone, I'm going to consider their other demands on their life. I'm going to ask them to work these extra hours, but I'm going to find ways to also get them rest. And Christians know that God made us not only to work, but also to rest. I know of a man who was asked to devote a lot of hours to the U.S. Treasury many, many years ago. He was looking to the church to support him and encourage him. (laughs) The church did the opposite. The church actually disciplined him for devoting so many hours to his job. So what am I saying? I'm saying not only should supervisors practice the golden rule, but churches should be there to pick up the slack. Brothers and sisters in Christ, how can I pick up the slack for my other brothers and sisters in Christ who are working long hours? I guess for me, when I'm hearing some of these stories that I'm hearing in 2021 about like why it's so hard for restaurants to hire workers, right? The One of the reasons that it's hard for hi- to hire some restaurant workers is A, people are concerned about working in high COVID environments. But the other one is people feeling like, I don't know, I just feel like maybe restaurant, people eating at restaurants have lost the ability to be kind and to be human. I feel like, you know, people are rude to me when I work. People are... And that happened uh, before COVID. <laughs> well, right. I'm, well, I'm wondering if COVID has caused that break, has given people an opportunity to just reevaluate. There's been this moment where people are like, wait, what is it I'm doing and why am I doing it? And can I be doing something different? That kind of moment that's happening culturally broadly, you know, and part of it, you hear some of these stories about people leaving because other people have left and they're like, oh yeah, that person's left and why am I still here? It seems to me there's system questions that are played into that and there's things that are played into more than just if I were a restaurant worker standing up for injustice. Or maybe you can tease out a little bit what standing up for justice would look like in that context that would enable human flourishing for the people who are leaving restaurant work saying, this is not a place of flourishing. Okay, so let me give you a couple of examples. This comes from my time at a university. Our dean was berating another colleague publicly. So what does justice look like there? Think about my colleague and how badly this hurting him. I took the latter. Me and another colleague approached our dean's supervisor and said, we don't particularly like the way the dean is speaking to our colleague. Now, my job was finished. It's up to the senior leadership to take that further. Now, let's go to a a restaurant situation. If a customer is berating 
someone made in God's image. I don't care who the person is, the waitress. It could be a male, female. If a customer is berating a worker, someone made in God's image, what is my role there as a believer? Should I say, well, this is just how people are treated who work in these type of jobs? Dr. King didn't believe that because that's why he stood up for the sanitation workers in Memphis. My job as a Christian is to ask God for the imagination and presuming that I am a Christian that studies God's word, I am to apply God's word in that situation and the Holy Spirit will direct me what to do. There's no cookie cutter. There's no manual I can look at and say, if you have this situation, what should I do? God gives us or asks us or requests of us to ask for wisdom. What virtues did Jesus model in his work? We are to imitate the same virtues or cultivate the same virtues in our work. This episode is brought to you in part by Seattle's Union Gospel Mission. Over 13,000 people in the Seattle area are homeless. Kathy is one of many who found a new life through Seattle's Union Gospel Mission. Growing up, my dad and I didn't get along. I kept running away from home until one time I was assaulted. After that, I carried a lot of pain inside of me, and I was doing a lot of drugs. I became homeless. It's taken me almost 40 years to get the healing I needed. But all along, God was looking out for me. He led me to the mission, and the mission has helped me in all kinds of ways. I've learned how to set boundaries and say no. Now I'm looking forward to working for the mission. I want people to know there's hope out there. God can help you heal. And grace will lead me home. To hear more, volunteer, or donate, visit UGM.org. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m., we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying and sirens go off and they're, and they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home. But hey, all my friends that were here were murdered. Here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. One thing that I think a lot of us struggle with is that you know, when, when, when I think of something like carpentry, right, there's a certain level of excellence and craftsmanship that is necessary to do that job well. And when I think about the other types of work, I don't want to at all glamorize the type of work that people were doing. Obviously, it ranges, see people doing things from tax collecting to growing and working in an agrarian economy. I think most of us recognize that work really changed in significant ways during the Industrial Revolution. The expectations that were 
of what work looked like, which would often involve a lot of drudgery, a lot of rote activity and doing the same thing, a lot of dehumanizing conditions. I remember reading about people who lost their fingers, for instance, working in factory mills, people who inhaled things that were really dangerous for them, really exploitive long hours. When we're thinking about the calls that we have to work or the calls that we're being asked to think, is it really fair and an accurate reading of the text to think that those apply as work had gotten into a more dehumanizing place? That's a great question. And I would say, what transcends the workplace are biblical principles like charity, like justice, like love, like patience. So while the workplace may change and the working conditions might change, they may be may be such that when I go to work, I'm whistling as I work, I'm dancing as I work, or they could be the other extreme. I'm dreading going to work. Yet the principles that should govern every workplace should be those that are virtuous. That's one of the reasons why whenever I teach ethics or leadership, I have a fairly meaty section on virtue formation. So even in those most dire work situations, God still calls me to be virtuous. And I should pray for the virtue formation of my supervisors. I should encourage my fellow Christians, brothers and sisters, cultivate virtue. Again, while the workplace may change, the Bible or biblical principles are true forever. Right. Thinking through some of that, you know, we've have published a number of things in CT about how Luther and Calvin and later Protestant leaders reshaped Christian thinking about work, emphasizing that all work is holy work. It's not that the monks and the priests are doing God's work and, and the cobbler isn't. The cobbler, as he's making shoes, is, is doing work that's as honoring to God as the priests. And that's really shaped Protestant thinking over time. And we also have done some pieces, and this is a little bit more recently, looking at not just how those thoughts have helped to bring dignity to people who are doing hard labor or doing office work or whatever, but that that idea has also been used to some degree. There's elements of an instrument of oppression in that, right? So if, if you can convince people that their work turning this screw is holy work, maybe you don't have to pay them quite as much. If you can convince people that they're, it makes sacred this work of difficult labor, and you can see it as, you know, all this work is sacrificed for God. What do you do, not as an owner, not as the manager in those situations, but what do you do as the worker in, in that situation? Keeping an eye on everything I do is as unto the Lord, but you can also start to see that in some cases that's being taken advantage of, or that you're starting to see that, wait a second, the work that I'm doing is demeaning to me and to my coworkers. Is the Christian word to come alongside your coworkers and encourage them and be Jesus to them in that moment? Or is it, as you were mentioning earlier, advocate for justice in much more systemic ways? Or is it to burn the house down a little bit and say, this form of work cannot be redeemed? I suppose it goes back to something I said earlier about the Imago Day. If I'm going to spend a third of my life in a workplace, I should be expected to be treated with dignity and respect, not a cog in the wheel. How can I ease the burden of my brother or sister? Can I get the help of the church? Can I write someone in management? What can I do to advocate for my brother or sister? 
Paul talks about this in Philippians. Look out for the interests of others. Am I loving my neighbor such that I'm looking out for his or her interests? Am I placing his or her interests above my own? If a pregnant woman is asked to work long hours, can I volunteer and say, I will take her hours so she's not on her feet? When her kid is born, can I rally behind her and buy her groceries? Luke, as we wrap this conversation, I just want to know if we can speak directly to any of our listeners, the majority of whom are going to be professionals. What would you say is this cohort's biggest blind spots when it comes to thinking about meaningful work for themselves and others? I would answer that question this way. Number one, we bring meaning to our work. We don't derive meaning from our work. Because we're made in God's image, our work is significant. Our work has meaning. It's not the other way around. We don't derive significance or meaning from our work. We have meaning because we're made in God's image. And the second I would say is be aware of the idols of our culture. One idol of our culture is my work defines me. My title defines me, that I should follow my passion. No, follow that which disturbs you. If you have a visceral reaction to a certain societal issue, maybe God is calling you to that. And then the third thing I would say is the second idol I think that folks need to be aware of, not only the idol of work, but the idol of individualism. I think many American Christians struggle with the idol of individualism, this notion that I'm not part of a community. What I do myself doesn't impact others. So I I would just say those two things. Be aware that we don't derive meaning from our work. We already have meaning or significance because we are made in God's image. Well, thank you for the discussion today. I invite anyone who has feedback, thoughts, questions, their own examples. You have stories of yourself about how your relationship to work has changed over the course of the pandemic, and you feel comfortable sharing that with us. We, Ted and I, are definitely very interested in this topic. And so please feel free to send us an email. We're at podcast at ChristianityToday.com. Um, we are on Twitter at CT Podcasts, and we really enjoy hearing from all of you. Now is the time of the show that we call Slow to Speak, and it's where we get to hear from all of our listeners. And I just want to take this time to say hey to everyone who has found us via the Mars Hill podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. Thanks so much for writing. We appreciate not only knowing that you guys are listening, but also hearing from you guys in our inbox. And we're going to start off today with a couple of letters from folks who have found us this way. So the first one is from Jasmine Holiday Hairgrove. Jasmine, I hope that's how you pronounce your last name. Apologies if not. Dear Quick to Listen, thank you for doing this show. I love the episode on letting one's conscience guide you, which was an episode we did a couple weeks ago. Very thought-provoking shows that encouraged me to pause, reflect, and examine my views, ideas, and responsibility as a Christian. This podcast points me to Jesus and his word, and I am very grateful for your posture and humility in presenting the information. This is what we need in such tense times. Jasmine, it's always really great to know that people are getting the podcast the way it's intended to be gotten. So thank you so much for listening and for writing us. Yeah, right on. 
Hello, Morgan and Ted. I love the presentation of both sides of the argument on conscience of vaccines and masks. I felt that some of the anti-mask and vaccine stances were presented fairly without a lot of hyperbole. It's been hard in our small town to find balanced Christian opinions that are not saturated in political agendas, or I can only describe as Christian nationalism. With that said, uh, as much as I enjoyed the episode, and I do understand it was regarding Paul's writing on conscience, I was a little disappointed on a lack of Jesus's own actions in situations much like this. From dealing with leprosy to healing the blind, Jesus consistently put himself and the disciples in positions of incredible discomfort, and it was all to serve others. I feel when conscience is in question, we should rely on these words and actions to point us in the right direction more than anything. Just my two cents. I thoroughly enjoyed the show and found it incredibly informative and helped soften my edges towards some of the opinions around me. Excited to keep listening from Justin Llewellyn. Thank you, Justin. Yeah, I hear you on that. Yes, would that we could have covered the full corpus of scripture on some conscience stuff. I'm glad we got where we got on that one. Hi there. I was very excited to find this podcast from the Mars Hill series. I just listened to this episode and this writer is talking about the same episode on conscience. And I really couldn't believe my ears that a false dichotomy was presented with, quote, listening to your conscience connected specifically to not getting the vaccine or wearing masks versus following the science and do get the vaccine or wear masks. Making this a binary issue continues to compound the divisiveness and hateful rhetoric surrounding these personal medical decisions and ignores the fact that many doctors, scientists, and other medical professionals are following the science and may not be recommending vaccines or masks for everyone and are adamantly standing up against mandating them. I appreciate the premise of laying out a biblical foundation for how it can be dangerous making decisions based on your own conscience versus educating yourself and also considering what is best for the greater good. But putting these specific choices into one camp or the other was really irresponsible and honestly gaslighting to suggest that those who are hesitant about vaccines or wearing masks all the time, especially for children, are not following the science and that we don't care about the greater good. It is just the opposite. Thank you, Laura. Laura, thank you for listening to an episode and making it through an episode where you did not necessarily agree with the premise of the episode. I really commend you for that because I know that is not <laughs> always to stay in a listening posture. And I thank you also for writing us. And I will say, I think we will continue, though, to do shows where we are tying how we should think about something biblically to a current event. So expect stuff that will continue to examine specific events on these things. And here's a different perspective. Hi, Morgan and Ted, longtime listener. I always appreciate your choice of experts and thoughtful questions. I really thought this episode, again, conscience, asked the wrong question. I find that people are generally relatively tolerant of others in matters of conscience. But what I find is the big question in regards to masks and vaccines is that people aren't working off of the same set of facts on which to base their decisions. You're entitled to your own opinions, but you're not entitled to your own facts. Other Christians are basing their opinions on either their own quote-unquote research or on studies that don't pass any kind of scientific muster or far beyond the point of whether it is right or not to eat meat sacrificed to idols. It's more like someone denying that the meat was sacrificed to idols at all. I think we've lost how to disciple people towards truth that is not explicitly laid out in Scripture. And as someone that works in the medical field, it makes me incredibly sad to see my fellow Christians mislead others in the name of faith. Thanks, Kate. Thank you, Kate. Really appreciated that. That is an interesting question, I think, of the relationship between conscience and information, something that we deal with a lot at CT. 
All right. Our last letter is a short one from Billy Myers. Thank you for the interview with the Afghan pastor. It really helped me to understand their situation and how to pray. This was in response to the episode we recorded last week with David Paimano, who is an Afghan pastor who shared his testimony and how he's processing everything happening in Afghanistan right now. Guys, keep praying for the situation over there. It's still not great. So let's not just lose track of Afghanistan since there's other news happening this week. Guys, one reminder I will add, and that is that you may have noted when you have sent us a letter before that some of the content of your letter can get trimmed down. And that is because we are trying to make everything as coherent and readable as possible. And also because we have often lots of letters. So if you have questions about that, that's what is happening there. Please keep writing us. It's really a joy to hear again from all of you new listeners. I appreciate how many of the letters today had suggestions on how to make things better or thought they could challenge us in some way. So I really appreciate hearing from those perspectives. So send us an email. We are at podcast at christianitytoday.com. Now is the time that we should call Precious Moments, which is when everyone gets to share something that has recently brought them joy. Over to you, Ted. Morgan, the reason I was not able to be on the podcast last week is because we had a bunch of people, my coworkers, other editors from CT here at our headquarters here in Chicago and Harold Stream outside of Wheaton. Right now, the face-to-face folks is about four of us here in the office. Some folks have moved away. Other folks have not been able to come in. Having half a dozen folks come in that I have coworkers and just being able to have conversations with human beings face-to-face, not over Zoom, have long dinners, chatting and catching up with about life. It was a source of great, great, great joy. <laughs> the remote workplace is good. There's all these articles about how, you know, the in-person workplace is never coming back and remote work is here to stay. That all that may be true, but boy golly, we sure do need times when we get together for dinners, informal conversations, fun things that are not just how do we get this work done. And then some face-to-face conversations where we have hard conversations about what it is we want to change and areas where we may not see eye to eye and we have to work it out face-to-face. That's so much better in fleshly form than it is over Zoom. So we're talking about trying to make work more human. Well, last week, work was very, very human. I just came home every day from work full of joy. How good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters live and work together in unity. That was where I was at. Morgan, how about you? What gave you joy? This is a silly one, but I went to the library last week to get some books and they have a section here that is full of basically kids books about Hawaii. And one of the biggest ways that I first got into history growing up was by reading American Girl books. And for people who are not familiar with American Girl, essentially it's very expensive doll making company, but also a book publishing company that publishes a lot of books, a lot of historical fiction for girls. And in this instance, they had a series of a girl who is growing up in Hawaii, not surprisingly, during Pearl Harbor. But anyway, one of the things that the American Girl books have always done really well is do their best to contextualize into there. And so part of the reason I borrowed them is because I saw that they were using, I don't know, about 40 different Hawaiian words that are kind of like the words that anyone who grows up here grows up knowing. And I wanted to have some con- a little bit more context for them. 
What I didn't know about the book is that it was actually going to take place in the neighborhood that I live in in Honolulu. There's a part where the main character loses her dog and they start naming the streets that she goes down to find her dog. And I was like, whoa, those are all several blocks from my house. That's really interesting. Character also goes to, her name is Nanea. Nanea also goes to an elementary school that I pass frequently when I'm biking to Walmart or the mall or whatever. I did not know that that elementary school had actually been badly damaged during Pearl Harbor either. That was interesting to learn about that. It was also interesting and troubling to learn about yeah, how much action was taken against Japanese residents who lived here. I didn't realize, for instance, that after they put a curfew in following Pearl Harbor, I think it was eight o'clock for everyone, but it was seven o'clock for Japanese people, for instance, and some of the other ways that Japanese people were in many ways persecuted after Pearl Harbor. So there were just interesting details about life here on Oahu. And Nanea, I think, is maybe like three years younger than my grandparents would have been, four years younger. So I keep thinking about them when I read this book. Anyway, shout out to American Girl. <laughs> right on. Yeah, I also enjoy the Nanea books. They're good. Luke, what has been bringing you joy this week? One is a nerdy thing that brought me joy. I've asked six of my disabled friends to help me to write a book. The book will feature their stories. They will contribute a chapter a piece. And this gives me great joy to steward them and pastor them through this and looking forward to uh, the publication of, of that book. And then the second thing that brought me joy is my mom lost her mate several weeks ago. I've been helping her with some of her affairs and she sold a car, but she couldn't find the title. So she had to go to the local DMV and DMVs, are, I suppose, are, are the same everywhere. It's, it's like a circus, but she got a form and it wasn't very clear, but she found her title because she had to get a form to get a duplicate title. But she texted me a few days ago and said she found the original title, which means she doesn't have to fill out this complicated form. And so I'm just happy that she found the original title. That brought me joy. That is great. Luke, where can people find you on social media? Well, if they want, they can find me on Facebook or Twitter and Instagram and LinkedIn. Well, everyone, that is it for us this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode of Quick to Listen. This podcast is produced by myself and Matt Lindor. The music is by Sweeps, and the transcript is done by Faith and Dovu. Again, if you have feedback, send us emails. We're getting lots of emails. Thank you, everyone. At podcast at christianneedsday.com. You can also support the show by going to Apple Podcasts and rating and reviewing it as well. So thank you, everyone, who continues to do that. We will see you all next week.